This week on New Mexico in Focus, as chaos erupts in Washington, New Mexico's only DC Republican objects to the vote count. Plus, for so long we've just sort of hoped that it would fix itself and that working with the market, it would somehow magically work. That does not work. With a change of power, what's ahead for the predicted flood of evictions? New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. There are a lot of heavy hearts this week as pro-Trump rioters took over the U.S. Capitol, attempting to stop Congress from certifying electoral college votes that make Joe Biden the next president of the United States. That, as newly elected Republican Congresswoman Yvette Harrell from CD2 objects to the vote, the line will discuss. We'll also look at Christmas services at two Albuquerque megachurches that flouted public health orders and a new anti-discrimination law in the Duke City. Our land returns with a look at a proposed law that would expand Bandelier National Monument, but at what cost to sovereign native tribes? We begin with the line. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast edition. Today is Friday, January 8th, 2021. I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer of New Mexico in Focus. Uh, just again, happy 2021 to you all. Uh, this is a week unlike any other for a lot of us, um, especially after the events from earlier this week in front of the U.S. Capitol. We have got uh, various um, discussions about what happened this week in terms of the riot and the siege, attempted siege of the U.S. Capitol, but also uh, our one and only Republican member of the congressional delegation, that being Yvette Harrell from CD2. She was part of the group of Republicans who objected to the certification of the Electoral College vote, and the line panel is going to weigh in on that. In addition, we encourage you to listen to the Facebook Live we did with our line panelists. We do this every week at about um, 11 o'clock. It's a warm-up for the show. We usually call it One More Thing, where everybody uh, goes around and, and talks about something that caught their eye this week we just don't have time for in the show. That conversation this week was all about what had just transpired um, in our nation's capital. And uh, interesting conversation for sure, not a lot of answers about how we restore some of this damage moving forward, but uh, you can find that if you're interested on our Facebook page at New Mexico in Focus. Joining us on the line this week, uh, we have Christel, Crystal Ciarza from Ciarza Digital Group, um, and we also have Giovanna Rossi uh, from Collective Strategies, and we welcome back Justine Fox Young, former lawmaker herself and an attorney been a while since we've been able to have her on as she welcomed a new addition to her family. Congratulations, Justine, again. Um, but uh, we, we love when we have our all-female panels, um, and we know you're going to enjoy what they bring to the table during these discussions this week. Also ahead on the line, discussions about the passing of the Crown Act here for the city of Albuquerque. And uh, in addition, over the holidays, we saw the... Um, News dominated the news for a couple days of some of the big mega churches um, that defied public health orders for Christmas Eve services, not following the public health order 
uh, not following COVID safe protocols. Um, they have been fined by the state uh, and continue to be defiant about those efforts. So those are some of the things we'll be talking to the line panel about. But let's kick things off right now with a discussion about um, newly seated congressional member Yvette Harrell of CD2 and her decision to line up with uh, dozens of other Republican um, members of Congress to object to specifically um, Arizona and Pennsylvania's uh, electoral college vote and the certification from earlier this week and potential implications for her for jumping out of the gate in such a high-profile manner. Here now, host Gene Grant. Yvette Harrell claimed a rigged election when she lost two years ago. After winning the second congressional district in November, she's complaining of other electoral problems. Now, as violent pro-Trump pro, pro demonstrators descended on the Capitol Wednesday, she planned to object to electors from six states, along with more than 100 other Republican colleagues. Given the stunning violence, some expected her to change course in her objections to votes in Arizona and Pennsylvania. She did not. Here to offer thoughts, our line opinion panel, President of a Collective Action, Action Strategies, Giovanna Rossi, is with us. Thank you. Good to see you. And from Ciarza Social Digital, founder Crystal Ciarza joins us as well. Very glad you have you here. It's great to have Justine Fox Young back with us. She's a former state representative and a local attorney. Welcome to you all. All right, here's what Representative Harrell wrote about her decision. Quote, my hope is that elevating this debate to the highest and final level the Constitution provides for will result in a continued discussion of our electoral process. Action must be taken to restore Americans' faith in our fairness of our elections and the legitimacy of our institutions, end quote. Justine, did she accomplish her goal? Well, to the extent that there is a real issue there, and I mm -hmm. think there, there are a lot of people across the country who think that there are issues with voter integrity, with, you know, the number of votes that are cast before election day, you know, really b banal technical issues like signature verification and extending absentee ballot deadlines. Um, All those things that have been around for a decade, is that what you're saying? <laughs> Yeah, and you know, I raised a lot of these issues when I was in the legislature. These are ongoing um, legislative fights. I think it's there's a process, and it's and it's appropriate for our members of Congress to the extent that they think it's important to raise these issues. I don't really take issue with with that. I don't really know what her goal is, though. I mean, mm -hmm. I, and I think you know we've seen in some of the comments in, in the last 24 hours from people like Tom Cotton and others yeah there's a meaty issue there there's work for state legislatures to do you know to the extent that there's doubt about election results but a lot of this is just political theater it's fundraising it's capitalizing on a moment so i don't want to really speculate about what yvette harrell wants to make out of this moment um but it but if it is substantive changes in say new mexico law or pennsylvania law or Georgia law, um, she's not in a position to affect those changes. I mean, mm -hmm. you can, and, and this has happened, there's precedent for this in many prior elections where Congress debates these issues, raises the issues at the point of, you know, where we were yesterday as we um, certify the election. And that's, that's not improper, but raising it to a fever pitch, um, you know, I don't know if she wants to raise money out of it, if she wants to inherit the the 
the Pierce legacy on this. I, I don't know. Um, yeah. But I, I don't see her activating or motivating the legislatures who who need to do the work that I that I think she's asking be done. That thank you. Your last point there was was kind of what has been in my head as well. Giovanna, let me read you uh, partly her quote that was in the journal. Um, as a state representative of New Mexico, Pennsylvania's unconstitutional actions disenfranchised my constituents and the constituents of my colleagues. How? I, 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 I don't get the connection there. Yeah, when I heard that on the clip, when she said that, it was really uh, confusing. Uh, and so I think she, you know, somebody, some staffer put that into her comments because they thought, oh, we need to make a connection to New Mexico because people are going to be mad about her doing this. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, but you didn't accomplish <laughs> what you needed to do there. Um, it doesn't make any sense. And um, th the bottom line is that by participating in that effort in the political theater, as, as Justine said, um, she was part of enabling what happened yesterday she was part of the problem and i don't think any amount of explaining away now uh can help her in this situation i think mm -hmm. we need to call it like it is and and um you know and say like that that was enabling the 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 events that happened yesterday it was um unacceptable as, as a member of congress mm -hmm. to do that mm -hmm. Crystal, I probably shouldn't let the viewers know as we air this Friday night, we're taping this on Thursday midday, a whole lot of things could have happened <laughs> between then and now, so I apologize to the viewers in case something has happened. But on that note, Ms. Harrell did say that what happened on Capitol Hill was reprehensible. That was a quote on Twitter, and she's also aligned herself, however, with Cowboys for Trump, Coy Griffin, who was pictured at the event, he was at the U.S. Capitol, Yesterday, when all this was going on, not inside, the picture of him was outside. She has walked this amazingly thin line for a lot of months when it comes to this stuff and this guy, Coy Griffin especially. She always seems to be having to answer for him and his, her association with him. I, I, you know, is this do something about her credibility to, when we hear her say these things in your view? It's a great question in terms of credibility, because instantly when I read, I heard the speech, I said, wow, whoever wrote that for the entire Republican um, group of legislators that were on the opposition must be proud about the fact how well she read somebody else's statement. Right. That's immediately the first thought that I, I had. And and I also think that with Yvette Harrell and obviously, you know, dancing with Cowboys for Trump, um, who I have unfortunately met through Twitter, just like many of us have. Um, it, it's really interesting that when she, for, for some of her first words were, it's unfortunate that this is going to be, uh, this topic is going to be my first speech as an elected official right. into the house. And what made me say, what would made, when I heard that, I said to myself, well, it will be the first and only speech that will dictate your loyalty to the party and which side of the Republican Party you have chosen. And I say this because other Republican um, legislators like uh, Senator Lindsey Graham said something that made me just uh, say, I, I never thought I would say the day or never would imagine that I would see the day. And he said, the mob got me to do something I'd never do, which is 
admit that Senator Rand Paul is right. <laughs> he could have said those exact same words. She could have said something along those same party lines. So that speech for her, as canned and as red as it sounds, even if she um, if she voted to upheld the Electoral College vote, she would still have a strong legislative voting support in um, in the county in the counties that she represents. Mm -hmm. That the fact that she chose this portion of the aisle may actually affect her reelection in two years. Hundred percent. She could have disagreed, and she would have been fine. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think. She figure out her legacy um, on day one. It's an interesting point there. Um, I've ha I have to follow up, Justine, with on that very point. It's interesting. Political future from this, I, you know, I have to imagine that she might have gone into this thinking, well, I'm an ex-legislator in New Mexico. I could walk back there and swing a big hammer about reform if I join this and it's things sort of work out our way, but it didn't work out their way. <laughs> and so it just seems to me, how could she, again, credibly come back to New Mexico and say, we need to do some reform things it, it, through this process, does that work? Well, let me answer a slightly different question and okay. what I've been thinking about. And I, and I wish that there were more conversation around the Electoral College about what happens to everybody who's not in one of these six states that, that mattered this election. And I think what, what um, Yvette Harrell is feeling is not misplaced. She didn't articulate it very well. But when she says our fates depend on Pennsylvania and Michigan and you know, this is what has happened in this country. And as we've become more polarized and as, as, as the number of swing states has diminished, we places like New Mexico find themselves without a voice. Right. And it's very hard as a representative from a state like what is now a flyover state, um, as far as presidential politics is concerned, to have a voice. And so you end up jumping on the bandwagon and, you know, waving the flag because you can't, you know, you can't deliver in other ways. And that is a problem for our country. I think that is a, should be a bigger conversation piece than, um, than some of the other electoral reforms that are, that are being discussed. But that, I think that's what she's trying to say. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, we're at the mercy of these swing states. Does well, that fair, fair enough. I think Crystal's point though, if she, maybe if she had written it herself and come from her own heart, maybe that might have come across a little bit more. It just it just rang a little flat. Well, you know? all these stump speeches do. I mean, yeah. you stay up and watch C-SPAN any night and you're gonna feel that way. They say very yeah. little anymore. That's a good point. So then let's call it like it is. So, so then let's say what this really was, which was it was a political stunt and it was unacceptable. And I think we're going to see, you know, people really working against her in, in her next election. Yeah, mm. I think that probably is true. Interesting points there. Hey, we're out of time on this topic, but don't go anywhere. We're talking evictions next. Up next week, this week, we want to return to a topic we've covered several times during the COVID-19 pandemic, and that is housing security and evictions during the ongoing coronavirus outbreak. Uh, of course, here in New Mexico, the Supreme Court did issue a moratorium on evictions. Um, that is still in place, and the national moratorium on evictions has actually been extended to the end of this month. Uh, if you've been watching and seeing some of the coverage we've done on that, uh, this is really, of course, a good thing in the middle of a pandemic where people are not necessarily able to work or to make ends meet, but uh, it's also a solution that really kicks the can down the road because, in effect, 
the evictions happen, they just don't get executed until that moratorium is lifted. And so there's going to be a flood of evictions when the time comes that that moratorium is lifted. And there are reports that are being done nationally. I haven't seen as much locally, but that there are also creative ways that folks are finding to get around the moratorium. Um, And of course, these are very vulnerable people And these are very vulnerable times. And it's also a challenge for the landlords because they are counting on that income as well. And so we caught up with uh, line regular Serge Martinez, who's also in the UNM Law School and a housing advocate. He knows a lot about these issues. So we just want to check in with him to get caught up on what the situation is here in New Mexico and what folks are doing and what we may see even in the legislative session to try to help with this eviction um, issue. snow slide that's coming our way when this moratorium is lifted. So uh, correspondent Megan Cameron Camerick has that interview for us. Let's listen to it now. Thank you for joining us here in New Mexico in Focus. Serge, the national eviction moratorium set to end the last day of 2020 was extended for one month. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Lawmakers struck the coronavirus aid deal on December 20th to extend the national eviction moratorium through the end of January and establish an assistance rental fund of $25 billion. How does that new deal translate for New Mexicans? Uh, so the the moratorium, the CDC imposed moratorium that's extended is, you know, in New Mexico, it may not have that much of an impact because we still have the stay that was issued by our state Supreme Court back in March that is still in place and is still keeping people from being evicted for non-payment of rent. Uh, We don't know how long that will last and there are certainly um, things that could be done to make it a little bit more robust. But uh, in terms of how that extension of the federal moratorium will affect folks, it's probably not gonna make a huge difference in terms of how that affects individual renters who are facing eviction. Um, the $25 billion, right? We, our share of that in New Mexico looks to be about $200 million, and it's not clear yet exactly how that will be distributed, how much of that is purely for rent, and how much might go to other things like utilities. But that's a big pot of money that will be coming you know, toward, to New Mexico. So we can look to that as, I think, providing some relief to tenants and landlords who have really been struggling mm-hmm. uh, you know, in this pandemic. The, you know, the, the rules around the allocation of that money leave gaps and folks who will be uncovered and doesn't address all of the, the potential, the folks who might be potentially in need of that, but right. it's a good start. So according to data from the Census Household Pulse Survey just over a month ago, one in five adult renters said they were behind on their rent. Do you find similar statistics here in New Mexico? Yeah, I mean, no one knows exactly what the numbers are, right? But anecdotally, and certainly based on what I'm hearing from around the state and seeing what's going on, that sounds certainly not too low, uh, or not too high, rather, right? It may be too low, given, you know, the economic issues that we already have here in New Mexico and the housing instability that was already here before March when it was all exacerbated. But yeah, those numbers, I mean, whatever the actual numbers are, they are shockingly high. It is very high. And evictions worsen the spread of COVID. There's just a big study on that. $25 billion only covers about a quarter of the back rent that's owed, even though it's a huge amount of money. Um, 
new administration coming in? Will we get better numbers? Is it too late to stem the spread of, of COVID from evictions? I don't think it's too late. I think we're getting to a point, you know, we've been talking for months about the the tidal wave of evictions that's going to be coming. And there have been stopgap measures and ways that the can has been kicked down the road. Um, we're getting to a point now where the amount of back rent that is being that has been, you know, stayed or delayed is going to become unpayable. So mm -hmm. even even when folks get back to work or whatnot, they're not going to be in a position to be able to pay, as you said, you know, these hundred billions of dollars of back rent. It would require a real commitment to to facing this. I don't, but because of the the half measures that have been in place have worked well enough, right? We don't see the the huge mass dislocation that we've been worried. That day is coming. We just don't know exactly when that will be. But what is needed is immediate intensive intervention right now to stop that. Because you're right, when people are dislocated, it's not just their belongings that that, that move around with them, right? It's mm -hmm. um, the coronavirus thrives in that environment. Early in 2020, you and a couple of others formed a group called Amparo, which means Protection Refuge Shelter, and it was created to rapidly distribute rental assistance to families in Albuquerque who have kids. It's a pretty narrow focus, as you say, mm -hmm. a new organization just starting out, and you created Amparo because you were coming across families facing eviction when resources were, uh, were available because getting those resources was often really cumbersome and slow moving. Mm -hmm. Um, and in an email to our producers here at InFocus, you said, I'm going to quote you, I have mixed feelings about Amparo. I absolutely think it fills a need, and I'm so pleased with all the love and support we've gotten from folks, but I'm angry that it exists at all, because that means the state is not treating housing as a priority, let alone a human right. So what must the state do to make housing a priority? Right. I mean, I think the first step is to recognize really how important housing is to all the things we want to accomplish as a state and housing stability. We've seen over the last 10 months what it means for public health, but we haven't really also understood what it means for you know, individual health, mental health, for community stability. But we treat it as this sort of you know, commodity and hope that the market will address it rather than something that is a right and a bedrock foundation. So, you know, here in New Mexico, we don't even have anybody whose job it is at the state level to coordinate and discuss all of the housing issues mm -hmm. that we have as a state. We have different folks who have different parts of the job, but, you know, I've been for quite some time suggesting that advocating for us to have somebody whose job it is, a department or a, a you know, a, a person in a particular position whose job it is to understand and coordinate all of these little strands of housing to really you know, understand the, the centrality of stable housing in everything we do in New Mexico and to put the resources toward it, right? Rather than rely as we're doing, right? On small nonprofits, on individual donations, on, on disjointed uh, and dispersed sort of sources of, of assistance rather than looking at, at treating it as a state, you know, as some as a priority of our state and create a sort of a single focus on it. And as I said, it's easy to talk about it, but it's important to put resources toward that. Well, it reminds me of the early childhood issues because those are sort of scattered across departments. Right. And now we have a secretary 
focused on early childhood. Yeah, right? I, I think and there's a lot of, position, you know. Yeah, I, th I think it's a good analogy, right? Because there are, you know, there's folks who are trying to create affordable housing and, and develop more housing. There are folks who are worried about health, public health, folks who are worried about community and economic development. But there's there's no one single person whose job it is or place whose job it is to bring that all together and sort of, you know, coordinate all the efforts and all the things that we're doing. But and again, but it's also symbolic, right? The the lack of that shows what we do and don't care about in New Mexico in terms of what we think the role of our state is uh, in helping the folks who live here. What should the we be doing at a national level to make housing a priority? Well, I mean, first of all, recognizing that it is a real issue and it's something that Congress has been doing. They've been, um, you know, pushing and, and getting some some money out the door and putting you know measures in place. But I think all of the halting, the the stays and the moratoriums, they're really they're they're a half measure. They're not addressing the full extent of the issue. They are saying, well, we can you know let's just try to hold this back until something happens down the road. And missing the 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 idea that we're going to need people, tenants, and landlords have been missing money, right? They've been going without. So we really. I think it needs a real commitment in the moment to addressing that. Going forward, right, we have no longer have a tradition of public housing in this country and in fact have limited our ability to expand it to, in, some, in some ways. And what that again says is, you know, this is something the market will take care of that. We're not going to worry about it rather than this is a real issue that is central, not just to the state of New Mexico, to every person in the United States and should be treated as a right that we have and something that because we can provide housing, we will, and we'll reap the benefits from that. But for so long, we've just sort of hoped that it would fix itself and that working with the market, it would somehow magically work. That does not work. It has not worked. That was the problem before the pandemic. It's only been highlighted more so. When the vaccine has been given to every person in America, we will still have this issue. And the time to focus on it is now rather than wait for another crisis or calamity down the road. Yeah, we have Section 8, but the people I talk to anecdotally when I help them with rent is, that's a long waiting list. New Mexico yeah. also has a significant population of Native Americans and many, though they have housing, they're living in substandard or overcrowded conditions often. Many others lack housing altogether on tribal lands. Many indigenous people are homeless in urban areas and COVID has hit tribal areas and Native Americans particularly hard with poor housing playing a big part. Many Native American elders don't believe the federal government cares enough to address the problem. Is there a community approach that's the answer? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we have seen the, as you're saying, like sort of the, the lack of attention to community economic development in tribal communities around, around the country, here in New Mexico in particular, uh, and, you know, and the Navajo Nation, which spans a few, uh, several states, seeing the lack of support, investment, concern about economic development uh, in those communities and really pushing for prosperity in, in tribal communities is, we see how that plays out, right? Yeah, the housing conditions in parts of the tribal communities in New Mexico are just deplorable and below what most folks would think are acceptable in, you know, in this time and in this place, and yet we let it go. 
So uh, an understanding that we need to do more in that realm is super important, but I think investing in prosperity and pushing for prosperity in those communities is, is key and crucial. We only have about a minute, Serge, but are you looking at any proposed bills in the upcoming legislative session that will address housing? Yeah, there, there are a few things up there um, that I think will be interesting. There's some, there's an effort, and I will, in full disclosure, I've been part of, to, to change some of the, the, the timings in uh, evictions to give tenants more time, ideally to work things out with their landlord to, to get the resources that they need so it doesn't move quite so quickly. Um, and, you know, to just create more incentive for folks to sit down and work it out rather than go straight to eviction. Um, there are a couple, uh, couple other things up there, Andrea Romero and Angelica Rubio, representatives from Santa Fe and Las Cruces, have been putting forward a, uh, a bill that has a few tweaks and important changes to, to landlord-tenant law uh, mm. and, and procedure. Well, I appreciate you coming back and talking with us about this. Uh, obviously, it's going to be an ongoing issue. So I'm sure we'll see yeah. you again in the future. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. And before we leave this topic, Serge Martinez, uh, he spent a little extra time with us this week. Uh, we've talked about it briefly earlier, but we wanted to ask him a little bit about uh, landlords in this situation with the evictions moratorium. Uh, it's a complicated situation. There are, of course, evictions that are hasty, um, or there could be other solutions sought, but then there are also plenty of landlords who do their best to work with uh, their tenants, um, but at the end of the day, it's income that they are relying on as well. And uh, so um, in this extra, we have uh, Megan and Serge talking a little bit about landlords during this ongoing moratorium. What about landlords? Uh, there are loopholes to the moratorium about not renewing leases. And landlords are also counting on rent money, especially smaller property owners, to pay their own bills and support their own families. Yeah, it, this, I mean, it's easy to say tenants, 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 and, and not worry about landlords. And, you know, in some, it's easy also to say landlords are big companies and they, they, can, they can handle it. I mean, even if that were true, 10 months is a long time. Uh, but especially smaller landlords, right? And we talk about, you know, their mortgages, but it's not just mortgages. It's paying the, the light bill and the keeping the water flowing and keeping the places cleaned and maintained. Um, so it's not an insignificant issue uh, for, for landlords. And we, you know, I keep talking, when I talk about this, I try to stress, we can stay evictions as long as we want, but that's not the, that's not the whole issue because it is an ecosystem and landlords are part of it and tenants and all of us are. But if we deprive landlords from getting paid, you know, just by legislative or judicial fiat and say, you don't need to pay your, your landlord, that's not good for the housing ecosystem in New Mexico or anywhere. It's not good for the individuals. It's not good for the supply and quality of available housing. If we're going to leave this to the market to, to, um, to provide acceptable housing, then we're going to have to make sure that the market can survive this, the the pandemic, the global, you know, economic and health crisis, and that means support for landlords and finding ways that landlords can get, get, you know, paid the money that they're owed. And, you know, the, the, as you as we've discussed, right, the the twenty five billion dollars allocated is just a small part of the money that's going to be owed 
to landlords. And and the more the stays go on, the longer this goes, the, the higher those amounts get to the point where at some point it's just unpayable, unpayable, right? And so the you know the whole system is is it's just going to be a domino domino effect of calamity if if we don't find a way to also make landlords whole and help them through this this time as well. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for sticking around and talking about that. Sure. Time now to head back to the line opinion panel. Talked about it briefly earlier, but uh, you probably saw headlines during the holidays right around Christmas about the defiance of a couple of um, megachurches here in New Mexico, Legacy and Calvary, who uh, plastered photos all over their social media from their Christmas Eve services that were in person, were above the limited capacity numbers, not a lot of masks there, uh, just an outward defiance of the governor's public health order doing to the, due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the governor was interviewed shortly after, called the churches selfish for engaging in that behavior, and um, the churches in most part have doubled down on that, uh, pointing to their charitable efforts during the COVID-19 pandemic and also pointing to the fact that People could make the choice for themselves whether or not to attend those services or not. Feeds into the ongoing conversation we've been having for a while now about whether or not fines, each of those churches was fined $10,000, but is that really going to deter businesses, churches, you name it, and why we still can't seem to get um, on the same page about uh, what the approach should be to continuing to battle the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's turn it back over now to Jean Grant and the line for that discussion. Silent night, crowded night. A, vi- a video posted by the Legacy Megachurch showed a Christmas service packed with worshipers, maskless and singing. A similar video surfaced at an event at Calvary Church in Albuquerque. Now, the governor's office fined both Legacy and Calvary for not enforcing mask mandates and for violating capacity limits, $10,000 each. Both churches have conservative activist pastors. Steve Smotherman and Skip Heitzig, as you know, were making a statement. Crystal, do you think they got something across here, or is this something that I missed and the rest of us missed here? You know, it was, uh, and I'm I'm actually trying to pull up the statements that they both made. Mm that's a really difficult situation for um, for the public for for commentary because you know the the churchgoers themselves knew the risk that risks that they were taking by participating in Christmas mass mm-hmm. and then obviously the administration but what I found very um, not necessarily the best public relations move in my honest opinion was that not only did they respond to say when one church had said we're going to fight the $10,000 fine mm-hmm. the other one said we deeply apologized you know we did caution everybody and, and we were trying to be as conscious as possible considering the square the square uh capacity the square foot capacity of the church but then they came out and talked about the great charitable things that they did um, over the last over the last several months during the pandemic to show that they were trying to support the community right. and the money that they raised by it was like where what happened to humility guys <laughs> like come on and it just became really really difficult to 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 say like who was in the wrong and who was in the right obviously the easy answer is um, you know stay at home wear a mask 
Uh, don't participate in things like this. And it is absolute good leadership to make sure that you protect people that you serve. Um, as you notice, the, uh, the Archbish Archdiocese of Santa Fe has been tremendously suffering because of all the Catholic churches that have been closed by all this. Right. But um, none of them have, have been spotlighted the way that Legacy and Calvary did. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not hard um, to say no. It's, but it is not difficult to find ways to pray together if that's how you choose. So, mm -hmm. Giovanna, let me read you a quote from Skip Heitzig um, from Legacy Church. He provided this to Ch uh, KRQE News 13 about that Christmas Day service. Quote, we have taken the pandemic seriously from the start and have prudent measures in place. But when governments exceed their constitutional authority and contradict what we are called on by God to do, we answer first to his authority. Interesting point there. There's like three things mixed up in there, but I want you to get your overall, your overall take on that quote. Is that settle the issue for you does <laughs> uh well yeah when i read that i it just and that's what i was going to bring up here was just the blatant you know oh. the, the statement there that mm -hmm. actually the law like that they're above the law i mean that that's basically what he's saying he's saying a lot in that statement but what i took away was wow okay, here's a leader who many, many people follow. And uh, he is, you know, basically saying we're above the law. We don't agree with the public health order. Therefore, we're not going to follow it. And then in the same breath, you know, he's saying like, we're, we're doing everything we can in the pandemic. It's just a big contradiction. And, and uh, you know, when you talk about leadership and telling the truth, and doing the right thing none of those boxes are checked here mm -hmm. um and it, it's very unfortunate and uh the, the fines you know he, they're seeing these fines which are really small i think compared to probably what they could be but and and i don't know what you know i'm not sure what the fines really do in terms of a, a response but yeah, it, it was it was an insufficient um, explanation for what happened. Mm -hmm. I apologize to Mr. Heitzig real quick. He's he's of course associated with Calvary and not Legacy. I apologize to him and the church there. Go go ahead, Crystal. My fault. Right, and I'm just going to comment really quickly. If he feels that we have to follow the, the law of the Lord in this particular situation, why did Pope Francis choose not to have any type of services for both Easter and and Church Sunday? The Catholic Church is is um, the Catholic Church would easily rebut that specific argument. Mm -hmm. You know what, now the thought on this, you know, church members interact with the truly vulnerable. I mean, we talk about this all the time. That was one of the reasons why the governor cut down the percentages, of course. And doesn't this behavior put those vulnerable people, Justine, at risk? Yeah, I think it does. And I, I mean, I think it, to put it in context, our state government has acted pretty gingerly with respect to the churches and mm -hmm. been pretty careful um, as, as litigation has proceeded. And I'll say, you know, Skip Heitzig may appeal to natural law now. This is like classic forum shopping. They went to federal court and they were shut down. And mm -hmm. the reason that they were shut down is, I think, you know, there's a there's a principle in law and economics called the, the least cost avoider. This is a classic case where there's a really inexpensive and easy and cheap precaution that that these parishioners and these churches can take 
um, to increase safety. Mm -hmm. And that's all I have to do, whether you agree or not, it's, it's science agrees <laughs> that, um, that, that it will do that. And so if we want to predict how these, these cases are going to come out in court, when, when they can take that easy precaution, they should. And, and if they don't, they're going to lose. And so now to appeal to natural law, um, you know, I guess you hope you get a different answer, but, um, but yes, you know, the, the, we're talking about very vulnerable populations and we're talking about um, a collective action problem that is so serious because, you know, I think Crystal started out talking about making the, assessing the, the danger and the risk to, to oneself. Of course, the problem with this pandemic is that we're, we have exponential spread with the virus. And so you have to assess the risk to many hundreds and thousands of people beyond yourself. And mm -hmm. we're not good at doing that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's incumbent upon these church leaders to consider their parishioners and everybody their parishioners have contact with. But, you know, in context, I, I think the government has been careful and has thought, you know, Michelle Luan Gershom has, has really considered the First Amendment implications. You look at these fines levied against businesses, right. you know, over 70 grand last week at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're trying to allow these these churches to proceed and recognizing the importance in the community and that this provides community for so many people. But, you know, they had to do something. These, it's a huge affront mm -hmm. uh, to the executive order. Chris, I got a question about messaging. Um, we heard some noise out of the governor's office that, quote, one of the uh, our spokesperson called the pastors, quote, pro-virus. There's something going on here. There's like a loggerheads between the governor's office and some of these larger churches. Something's got to break here, it seems to me. Is that helpful, calling these people pro-virus? It doesn't also help that, and in, in, again, the administration is is what it is. There's, there's no opinion on the leader. I actually think the leadership is great. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we started to see, it, it, this becomes a discussion of the public information officials on, on the state level that have gone through so much burnout that sometimes the way that they've been addressing the public and other reporters in the in, in the past have started, it, it's very obvious of the tension and friction that they're feeling on a day-to-day -day basis. And I specifically point out uh, um, an article that, um, or, or, or a story that was uh, shown on KOB TV and it circulated the social media channels about how disrespectful the answers were from the PIO yes. um, at the time. And, mm -hmm. I, and as, as, as controversial as that is to bring up, you know, when you're using terminology like pro-virus or whenever you're creating responses with a lot of rigidity uh, or, or it's, it's uh, rigid in nature, it's, it, it puts us in a really difficult position to really support um, the, the efforts because we, we are all trying to find a sense of kindness and hope out of this entire um, situation. And so if if I was the churches or if I was working with another organization that was in a similar situation to avoid conversations like pro-virus, I think it would be, um, it's maybe this sounds naive, but actually responsive, uh, responsive language with kindness and optimism and forward thinking would be better than name calling. Mm -hmm. Giovanna, could I ask you to pick up on this too? It's an interesting bit of this. I I'm interested in your thoughts. Yeah, um, I, uh, you know, I don't know if it's name calling or, or, or if it's just, yeah, it's just poor um, 
phrasing, but you know, the, the point is um, that the, the churches were irresponsible. I don't know if that makes them pro-virus. I don't know what pro-virus is. Like right. everybody wants a virus. Um, right. <laughs> but, uh, but it's definitely irresponsible. And, um, and it's not just, you know, it's not just like a business owner saying like, come to my store and don't wear a mask. This is a, a leader of, of many people who are following the words that you say, and they are going to do what you do. Um, you know, we've seen this in the political uh, realm, of course, at the national level with the leadership on, on this pandemic. Um, and we're seeing, I, I feel like it's being replicated at this local level in, in the church leadership here. Um, and and the, uh, the explaining away, um, you know, we're serious about the pandemic, the only people that didn't wear a mask are those that we assume had a medical problem. No, no. Right. Those pictures, it was mostly people without masks. They were young. They didn't look like they had a medical problem. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it's not truthful. It's not leadership. Um, and and it's it's irresponsible and it's hurting people. It's hurting people. And and I'm glad Justine brought up this this. Um, uh, conversation of the individual versus the collective, because I think we really need to look at what is the collective benefit here? What is the collective good? How do my individual actions contribute to the collective good? We have to be thinking at a higher level, people. We, we can't just keep on with this, you know, me and my family, we're okay. I'm going to do what I want. Wise it's not words. Yeah, Never. wise words there, we really appreciate that. Have to leave it there, unfortunately, our land is next. Then we're back talking about an anti-discrimination ordinance right here in Albuquerque. All right, it's the second Friday of the month. That means it's time for our land. This is our monthly environmental series uh, with correspondent Laura Paskus. Always appreciate her work. And uh, this month we are taking a look again at a story we've covered in the past um, that has to do with legislation uh, proposed by New Mexico Senator Martin Heinrich that would open up more public lands in and around Bandelier National Monument and actually change its status from a national monument to a national park. Uh, there is a bit of conflict around this idea, um, largely with uh, Cochiti Pueblo is one of the pueblos around there who uh, there are really important sacred sites that would be impacted by this, not to mention just the additional traffic that would make it harder uh, for uh, members of the Coach de Pueblo to uh, visit those uh, places and take those pilgrimages um, to those sacred sites. Uh, they were on the record in opposition to this in the past, um, and uh, it didn't go anywhere last year, but Senator Heinrich has announced that he plans to reintroduce that legislation this year so we wanted to dive back into that conversation to hear a little bit more about what these lands mean to the Cochiti Pueblo and uh, more about their opposition. So uh, Laura Pasquez sits down with former governor of Cochiti Pueblo, Eugene Herrera, to talk about those things. Um, something I think is interesting to listen to is in terms of the input uh, on the front end of this legislation um, that uh, was not really extended to the Coach de Pueblo. Um, this is drafted sort of around them. And again, um, 
the senator has heard from them since then that they are in opposition to this as well as some other pueblos and tribes, but is not deterred in this. And want to point you to our website, New Mexico in Focus, where we also have response from Senator Martin Heinrich, who thinks this is a good thing, especially in terms of the state's efforts to open up more public lands to things like hunting, recreating, um, all of those things that are good for tourism and everything else. So obviously, two sides to the story. We did try to interview Senator Heinrich for this, uh, but he was not available in part because of the craziness that was this week in our nation's capital. So here again is Our Land with correspondent Laura Paskus. These days, as you can see, since the first point of contact about five, six hundred years ago, and where the American Indian is now today, and what do you picture it to be in another 500 years? Is there going to be these sites there available for our children to help maintain their way of life and to keep their way of life? We will end where we started this week. That is with the line. Uh, They are talking about Albuquerque City Council, which this week voted to approve an amendment to the city's um, human rights uh, doctrine, uh, basically, uh, around discrimination and cultural discrimination. And the amendment was what is known as the Crown Act, which basically forbids discrimination against cultural or ethnic hairstyles or headdresses, any of those sorts of things, which could be everything from burkas to dreadlocks. Uh, We became, I believe, the seventh uh, municipality or state or government to pass the Crown Act. Uh, And um, there have been some examples uh, here in the state uh, that drove this um, issue and this measure, but it was approved on Monday, and there is talk that it will be something that we will also see on a statewide level, maybe as early as this year's legislative session. So here now again, host Gene Grant and the line. Albuquerque has become the latest city to pass the quote Crown Act, which stands for creating a respectful and open world for natural hair. That's the crown bit. Now the ordinance which cities, a lot of states and the U.S. House have passed prohibits discrimination based on ethnic hairstyles or head coverings like burkas. And Giovanna, Councilor Land Center pushed this measure. It's been out there in the community, particularly for black women here in uh, New Mexico for a long time. Why is it important? Uh, well, it, it is really important. There have been stories both locally and nationally about different um, kids, children, and, and adults being discriminated against in school, at work, um, for the way their hair looks. And little girls in classrooms being told that their hair is um, uh, distracting. Your hair is distracting. Uh, so for, for all of those reasons, and, and it's, it's uh, basically... Um, discrimination uh, to, to to say those things to kids or adults um, in in any situation. So I think it's important because it it really sheds light on on this issue that um, that has been happening. That I think a, a lot of people who may not have um, have experienced this that they're not aware that it's actually happening to other people. So mm-hmm. I think first and foremost, it's raising the raising the issue. 
Um, it's educating, which is what a lot of times these bills do. You know, they really serve as a as an education tool to mm -hmm. start the conversation. We wouldn't be talking about this right here on this show without this. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important. Mm -hmm. Crystal, interestingly, you know, a lot of us are familiar with the subtle forms of discrimination. And it's easy to explain skin color, you know, sexual orientation, stuff like that. But when it comes to hair, a lot of folks just don't see it. Like, how can you possibly be discriminated against because of your hair? It's hard well, to, to get that across to folks, isn't it? It is. But one of the things that the legislation I just caught within like the last 30 seconds is mm -hmm. that it also said cultural headdress. That's right. And when you said that Counselor Senate had sponsored it, the light bulb, um, you know, I've always said, I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth whenever the, the show starts to air, but it instantly the light bulb came off and, mm -hmm. and called on and said, oh, wait, Counselor Senate's platform is always advocating for communities of, of color, including the Asian community, mm -hmm. being Vietnamese and Asian um, city counselor. So then, so it made me realize, oh, the cultural headdress argument is because of Southeast Asian women. Southeast Asian women and the hijab, uh, the hijab had, and how um, it's either a job or the headdress that they have to lose in order to um, to participate in, in in a community or an economy. So not only is she advocating for communities of, of color that are black, obviously because of um, issues with uh, people cut, having are forced to cut their um, their uh, um, cornrows or or their dreads or whatever mm -hmm. it might. But it's also protecting and, and inviting communities that have to wear cultural head dresses as a part of their culture and religion. It's, it's inviting them to making sure that um, Albuquerque is a more accepting city and that discriminate. And it shows outwardly, or I would imagine for a council Senate, it shows outwardly that um, our community is not going to be discriminating against a culture, no matter what is on your head or not. Mm -hmm. Justine, the black, um... A lot of black women were involved with this. The black, the BCOC is a big group around here, the Black Central Organizing Committee. A huge number of women were after this, but there's going to be activity in our state legislature coming up on this. What's your, what's your sense when it comes to statewide versus citywide ordinances like this? Well, and nationwide. I mean, and mm -hmm. one entity you didn't name, which makes me wonder and makes me somewhat suspicious is Dove's involvement in this um, campaign. Anytime you have a corporation who sells products and stands to gain um, from the passage of legislation, you know, you kind of wonder where this all came from. I mean, Dub is selling hair products um, to to the population, the interest groups um, who, who want to see this pass. Let me first say, though, that I think there's no dispute that we have really important protections um, to preserve along race and religious lines. And so I, I, my understanding is that um, this is an effort, although you know title, we have laws like Title VII, other civil rights laws that, and, and in New Mexico, the Human Rights Act and in the city, our human rights ordinance, that are supposed to protect people from racial discrimination, that this is like a big hole where, you know, we're just, people are unsatisfied, dissatisfied because courts are not finding that discrimination based upon somebody's hair, where where people feel this is so in, so closely tied to race and should be recognized as racial discrimination, it isn't happening. My question is, will it work? I mean, there are lots of societal ills that you can't you can't heal or fix with a bill. So when I read this ordinance and when I and when I look at the proposed state law, and I won't take too long, I I can tell. Um, 
you create all kinds of problems. I mean, if somebody wants to work on a movie set and they have the wrong kind of hair for the part, they're going to be an extra in New Mexico and they don't get chosen. Does that give rise to a lawsuit? Mm -hmm. um, if a firefighter wants to have dreadlocks and they can't wear the appropriate mask and equipment, does that give rise to a lawsuit? I see no exceptions in either um, mm -hmm. bill or here the ordinance that's been passed for those kinds of issues. And that's a problem for employers. We may want to educate people and bring light to an issue, but this is a huge burden and it's going to be job killing um, if it's if it's not if things aren't drafted narrowly enough. Mm -hmm. um, and so I worry a little bit about the statewide legislation going too far. It's, I don't just, know Justine, is this one of those deals where you put the law on the ground and just sort of see what happens and shape it as it goes down the road? I mean, this yeah, seems I think like that's a, very dangerous. Yeah. I mean, that, that's why we like things to proceed incrementally in the courts. That's why the case law develops slowly, yeah. because you can have all kinds of unintended consequences. But I do think that's the intent of the drafters. They want to see what happens. Gotcha. Got well, a wrap there, guys, unfortunately. Thank you to all the panelists for reading up and weighing in this week. I'm sorry, we're just a little short on time. Appreciate it. We thank you for tuning in, as always, to the podcast edition of New Mexico in Focus. We encourage you to leave us a review if you can. It helps us out and spread the word. Let people know they can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Also want to point you to some other things on our social media and website this week. On Friday, we talked to the communications director for the State Department of Health on Facebook Live to get an update on vaccine distribution in New Mexico. And they hinted at uh, something that will start next week, and a press release went out later Friday about that, that the state is moving into a new phase of vaccine distribution. It's all been healthcare workers to date, and now it will be opened up to some other populations. They also announced that the new online registration for COVID vaccines um, has reached 300,000 registrants already. And we learned in that conversation that New Mexico is the first state to have that online registration even put in place. There was also news this week, though, that um, there's been some shenanigans or sharing of event codes to allow people who aren't supposed to get the vaccine yet to get that vaccine um, at the state fairgrounds. And so it's a very complicated rollout. Uh, we seem to be ahead of the game, but there's still a lot to be determined there. We'll be following that closely in the coming days and weeks. There's a press conference on that on Monday. Look for that on Facebook Live as well. But uh, you can see that conversation with Matt Bieber of the Department of Health on our Facebook page. Um, you can also keep up with the show on YouTube, on Twitter, on Instagram. Just search for NMN Focus. We encourage you to do that. We'd love to hear what you're thinking about, what you're seeing and hearing, uh, and what we should be looking at for future shows. So with that, we'll say uh, goodbye for now and leave you with some final thoughts from host Gene Grant about the um, insurrection this week in our nation's capital and how we can all hopefully pull together to um, turn that negative into a positive and come back together moving forward. Have a terrific weekend, and we will talk to you again next week. I suppose one could view what happened at the U.S. Capitol earlier this week as inevitable. The logical and tragic endpoint of a fuse lit long ago. It's embarrassing, infuriating, and ultimately it left a feeling as if we hit bottom of some sort. But maybe that's the better end of this sordid event. Every situation has to have a low point in their story arc before things start to improve. And we have two weeks before we have our traditional change of power in the presidency. 
Two weeks to settle any last grievances regarding the vote tally and anything else holding us back from moving forward as a nation. Now, lost in the noise is we had our own protests at the Roundhouse at the same time the incursion at the Capitol building was happening. They found a way to make their point and stay outside of the building. It's not that hard. 